1: With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences. Because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp, clean clean finish. Cheers from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut. This is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host and reader and friend, Michael Ian Black, joined today, as is often the case, by my shitty little rat dog, Jack Jack, who has taken his position beside me On the reading throne, which is uh, a sofa. And there is a fair amount of love between Jack-Jack and myself, so it is appropriate. And even though I hate this little rat dog and want nothing more than for him to be put down or eaten by a bear, while he is here upon this earth, I will grant him some of my love as he does for me. And last time on Jude the Obscure, Jude had finally made it to Christminster, the city of his dreams, the city of so much attention and focus in the first part of the book, waylaid, of course, by the devious Arabella and the evil trap that she created for him with her pussy. And so now Arabella is gone to Australia. Jude is free to resume his studies. He has just arrived in Christminster. He is wandering the streets seeing ghosts, ghosts of all the scholars that have come before him, all the bright-eyed young men such as himself who found themselves on these storied streets at these institutions of higher learning and many of them have gone on to great things, and he is communing with them in the dark, fortified only by a cup of tea that he grabbed at his new lodgings before going out and wandering the darkened streets and finding different alleys to wander down. And now, now it says, he seemed to be catching a cold. So just as he is uh, moving forward in his progress, there is a new impediment. Perhaps it's nothing. Perhaps it's just the sniffles. Perhaps he will recover without even a thought. The way I sometimes do when I get a cold. Oh, I think I'm coming down with the sniffles. You wake up the next day and you forgot you even had them. Now, look, I have a hearty constitution. One look at me will tell you that. I mean, with this kind of physique, you know I'm very strong inside as well as outside. And so for me, a, a cold is... Nothing to worry about, but for Jude, poor pathetic Jude, we don't know. A voice reached him out of the shade, a real and local voice. You've been sitting a long time on that plinth stone, young man. What made you be up to? It came from a policeman who had been observing Jude without the latter observing him. Oh, and <laughs> wait, wait a second. <laughs> uh, so the next thing, I just turned the page to see what happens. Like, what? where does this conversation go? And I turned the page and the first thing I see is Jude went home and went to bed. Well, so why did they have to have the policeman there at all? He seemed to be catching a cold. He could have just said Jude went home and to bed. But instead, there's a little beat with the policeman saying, yo, you've been sitting on a long time on that plinstone, young man. What made you be up to? I thought there was going to be a beating of some sort or maybe just a thermos of chicken soup for jude when he said oh pardon me officer but i seem to be catching a cold and then the police officer who we thought was a hard ass would go oh well don't don't you worry about that son i've got a thermos of chicken soup but that's not what happened jude went home and to bed after reading up a little about these men and their several messages to the world from a book or two that he had brought with him concerning the sons of the university. As he drew towards sleep, various memorable words of theirs that he had just been conning seemed spoken by them in muttering utterances, some audible, some unintelligible to him. So the, the people that he's talking about now are the piece, the people from last episode that I just referred to, all the uh, the modern major generals and such that have, have come before him. And Jude, of course, is the model of a modern major general. I am the very model of a modern major general. I have information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations, both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse.
0: I am very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and in calculus. In short, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general.
1: maybe next time we'll do a gilbert and sullivan podcast wouldn't that be fun guys who do you like better gilbert or sullivan (laughs) gilbert obviously some audible some unintelligible to him one of the specters who afterwards mourned christminster as quote the home of lost causes though jude did not remember this omen. foreshadowing, was now apostrophizing her thus. So this is one of the guys who later would say it's the home of lost causes, but now he's saying this beautiful city, so venerable, so lovely, so unravaged by the fierce intellectual life of our century, so serene, her ineffable charm keeps ever calling us to the true goal of all of us, to the ideal, to perfection. Another voice. Well, I I, I, I hate to keep interrupting, but I feel like I have to, because this is a really interesting moment. So unravaged by the fierce intellectual life of our century. So serene. So what's going on in the 19th century? Now, look, I'm no historian. And in fact, I know almost nothing. I have referred to myself and will continue to refer to myself as a legitimate idiot. However, what is going on in the 19th century? Incredible tumult. We think of the 19th century as a place, I think, of uh, serenity. And in fact, he says so serene, but there's a lot going on. There's a tremendous going on and it's only accelerating. What's happening, of course, is the industrial revolution is just gaining, and I'm going to use a pun here, steam. And so, even uh, Jude and Mary Green has been starting to see the effects of this as old buildings are getting torn down, new buildings are getting slapped dashed together. There's all kinds of advances being made in the sciences, in the philosophies, in the arts. But this intellectual is saying Christminster, a place of learning, has escaped all of that. It is unravaged by all of that, which is a weird thing to say if you are dedicated to knowledge, that this this place of knowledge, Christminster, is somehow set apart from that. So he's saying the true goal of all of us isn't knowledge, which is, it seems to be what Jude is pursuing and what you or I, I think, would pursue if we were to go to a college town, if we weren't just pursuing getting laid and listening to Dave Matthews. He's saying the true goal of all of us is to the ideal to perfection, which feels like a kind of utopian vision for knowledge. And, but now we in the 21st century look at that and go, well, that's absurd. Knowledge does not in and of itself create perfection, far from it. If anything, it creates fracture. Those fractures allow for new avenues of inquiry which themselves will fracture and allow for new avenues of inquiry. And all of that is fascinating in its way, but it does not lead to perfection. And in fact, the the notion of perfection, I think, in this 21st century year, in which we find ourselves, unfortunately, that has been obliterated altogether. There is no such thing as perfection. Well, that was just an aside from me to you. With one Dave Matthews reference, only one. But now I feel like because I made one, there may be more. Are there going to be more? You're going to have to wait and see. We'll be back on Obscure. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. I say it three times because I have three people to mention here. Scott, Lauren, Paul. If you know them only by their first names, then I'm probably singing to the choir. If you don't know them just by their three names, let me sell you on them. There's a brand new podcast here on Earwolf called Threedom featuring Earwolf superstars, Scott Ackerman, Lauren Lapkus, and Paul F. Tompkins. I know them all, I am very fond of them all, and I could tell you how I like them in descending order, but I won't do that. You may know them from their other podcasts, Comedy Bang Bang, Spontanea Nation, and Raised by TV, and those shows are great. But the best thing about freedom very simple. Three funny people hanging out, cracking each other up, making fun of each other, sharing weird childhood stories. It's fun. And if you like these guys, and I do, and I could tell you what order I prefer them in, but I will not, you are going to love this show. It used to be behind a paywall. Like people were paying top dollar for this. But now you can hear Freedom Anywhere for free with new episodes every Thursday. Go find it in your podcast app. They got the first two episodes up. Make sure you subscribe to catch more episodes of Freedom every Thursday, it's Freedom Thursday. They both start with T H, easy to remember. Paul Lauren, Scott. That's the order. That's not true. I just, I wanted to end. I wanted to end on a joke. Hi, I'm back. Let me just pick right up where I left off. Another voice was that of the Corn Law convert. Oh, fuck. Now, I mean, I literally can't read a sentence without having to look up what that is. The Corn Law. What's the corn? I mean, I really apologize because I know a lot of you just want to know what happens in the book. The corn laws were tariffs and other trade restrictions on imported food and grain. Oh, well, that's timely, isn't it? Enforced in Great Britain between 1815 and 1846, designed to keep grain prices high. Uh, This is from Wikipedia to, to favor domestic producers and represented British mercantilism since they were the only mercantilist laws of the country. I don't quite know what that means, other than to say they're tariffs, they're taxes. Uh, so this guy, another voice was that of the Corn Law Convert, whose phantom he had just seen in the quadrangle with a great bell. Jude thought his soul might have been shaping the historic words of his master's speech, meaning the Corn Law Convert. Sir, I may be wrong, but my impression, and this is, he's quoting, Sir, I may be wrong, but my impression is that my duty towards a country threatened with famine requires that that which has been the ordinary remedy under all similar circumstances should be resorted to now, namely, that there should be free access to the food of man from whatever quarter it may come. Deprive me of office tomorrow. You can never deprive me of the consciousness that I have exercised the powers committed to me from no corrupt or interested motives, from no desire to gratify ambition for no personal gain. So this is basically Bernie Sanders. Sir, I may be wrong, but my impression is that my duty towards a country threatened with famine. That doesn't sound like Bernie Sanders at all. Then the sly author of the immortal chapter on Christianity. The sly author of the immortal chapter on Christianity. And now uh, quoting, how shall we excuse the supine inattention of the pagan and philosophic world to those evidences? And then in parentheses, it says miracles, which were presented by omnipotence. The sages of Greece and Rome turned aside from the awful spectacle and appeared unconscious of any alterations in the moral or physical government of the world. That's a guy making the case for uh, Christianity, saying, like, there were miracles and you basically fucking ignored them, you idiots. And then what? Then look what happened. Dummies. I wish he was just quoting people going, you fucking dummies. Dummies. Then the shade of the poet, the last of the optimists. And again, a quote. How the world is made for each of us, and each of the many helps to recruit the life of the race by a general plan. I guess that means uh, the world is made for each of us, right? Okay. And each of the many helps to recruit the life of the race by a general plan. Oh, I guess that's saying there's a general plan like for life. Uh, laid down by, I assume, God. And the world is made for us, each of us. And we all re- recruit, we all help the life of the race. We all support each other um, because of this general plan. So that, that that indeed is optimistic. Then one of the three enthusiasts, he had just seen now the author of the Apologia. Let's just look who, who wrote the apology. I should know all this stuff, but I don't know any of it. You know, I, I suspect most of you don't know either, so I don't feel too bad about it. But, you know, I, I didn't go to college. I mean, I did. I studied acting for two years like an idiot. Uh, oh, Plato. Duh. That's what I I kind of thought that, but I didn't want to say it. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm reading in the voice of Plato. My argument was... No, I don't know what Plato sounded like, but wouldn't that be funny if that's what Plato sounded like? My argument was... My argument was that absolute certitude as to the truth of natural theology was the result of an assemblage of concurring and converging probabilities, that probabilities which did not reach to logical certainty might create a mental certitude. Now look, again, I, I, I don't know anything. I'm a legitimate idiot, but my understanding of that is kind of like what uh, like astronomers are saying. We don't know why things are the way they are, but isn't it remarkable that they are, that there should be life on this planet and that if you altered even one tiny parameter, life would not exist and so we can't reach a logical certainty based on natural theology, but we can create a mental certitude. So Plato is arguing here, I think, that there is a natural force which governs us all, a kind of cosmic god. And As uh, astronomy goes deeper and deeper and physics goes deeper and deeper, a lot of times it kind of overlaps with this whole idea, this whole idea of a natural theology, some governing consciousness, something to explain why things are the way they are because they need not be this way at all, but they are. I feel so stupid right now because I know that many of you are far smarter than me and you're going to listen to this and go, God, Michael Ian Black, you really are a legitimate idiot. But I'm just doing the best that I can off the dome. You know, it's like when Dave Matthews goes into a solo. Guys, he doesn't always know where he's going, right? I mean, and, and, and the band, they're such a tight band. They don't always know where they're going. But they experiment. They noodle. The second of them, this is uh, of the three enthusiasts. I don't know what, what he's talking about by an enthusiast, but the second of them, no polemic, murmured, quieter things. And I'm quoting... Why should we faint and fear to live alone since all alone? So heaven has willed we die. Right. Well, that's beautiful. So what are you worried about being alone for? You're going to die alone. Like that's just the natural state of things. Like you're, you're born alone, you die alone. Big deal. Calm down. He likewise heard some phrases spoken by the phantom with the short face, the genial spectator. I don't know why Thomas Hardy is doing this. Like, Just say who you mean. And I'm quoting again. This is from the genial spectator. When I look upon the tombs of the great, every motion of envy dies in me. When I read the epitaphs of the beautiful, every inordinate desire goes out. When I meet with the grief of parents upon a tombstone, my heart melts with compassion. When I see the tombs of the parents themselves, I consider the vanity of grieving for those whom we must quickly follow. Well, yeah, I mean, that's lovely, right? That's like, what are you worried about? Like, you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were great. You're dead. Yeah, you were beautiful. So what? You're dead. Yeah, your kid died. <laughs> You feel terrible. Guess what? In about two seconds, you're going to be dead too. I mean, it's a bummer. And I'm not sure why he's calling him the genial spectator. It doesn't seem that genial to me. And lastly, a gentle voiced prelate spoke during whose meek, familiar rhyme endeared to him from earliest childhood, Jude fell asleep. Teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. (laughs) Teach me to die, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) That's how he went to bed. Teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. Oh, 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 I see what he's saying. He's not saying the grave itself is as little as his bed. He's saying you don't need to dread death. You need to dread death no more than you need to dread going to sleep at night. I totally misinterpreted that. I was like, "Hey, don't don't worry about it if you might if you, if you die a, as a child in your little bed," but that's not what it what what it means. He did not wake till morning. The ghostly past seemed to have gone and everything spoke of today. He started up in bed thinking he had overslept himself and then said, By Jove, I had quite forgotten my sweet-faced cousin and that she's here all the time, and my old schoolmaster too. His words about his schoolmaster had perhaps less zest in them than his words concerning his cousin. Oh, okay. The book's giving me a little line reading, so I guess I need to. Uh, I guess I need to reread that. By Jove, I had quite forgotten my sweet-faced cousin and that she's here all the time, and my old schoolmaster too. Well, that is the end of the first chapter in part second at christminster but just like with dave matthews when he releases an album that doesn't mean that's the last dave matthews album that's ever going to come out of course not so we'll continue with the next chapter in a minute Michael Ian Black, reading Jude the Obscure with you, and we are starting Part 2nd, Chapter 2. And I'm not putting on an affect. It says the word second. That's what it's called, Part 2nd. And it's also called Chapter 2. Necessary meditations on the actual... Including the mean bread and cheese question dissipated the phantasmal for a while and compelled Jude to smother high thinkings under immediate needs. He had to get up and seek for work, manual work, the only kind deemed by many of its professors to be work at all. Right. Well, we hear we hear that all the time, right? Hey, the guy guy doesn't even uh, doesn't even get his hands wet. Uh, doesn't even uh, doesn't even uh, break a sweat with his hands there. Doesn't even do nothing. Sits around all day reading uh, *Jude the Obscure*. Boy, what I what I would give to sit around all day reading *Jude the Obscure*. Passing out into the streets on this errand, he found that the colleges had treacherously changed their sympathetic countenances. Some were pompous, some had put on the look of family vaults above ground. Something barbaric loomed in the masonries of all. The spirits of the great men had disappeared. The numberless architectural pages around him he read, naturally less as an artist's critic of their forms than as an artisan and comrade of the dead handicraftsmen whose muscles had actually executed those forms. He examined the moldings, stroked them as one who knew their beginning, and said they were difficult or easy in the working, had taken little or much time, were trying to the arm or convenient to the tool. What at night had been perfect and ideal was by day the more or less defective real. Cruelties, insults, had, he perceived, been inflected on the aged erections." such a child. Uh, The condition of several moved him as he would have been moved by maimed sentient beings. They were wounded, broken, sloughing off their outer shape in the deadly struggle against years, weather, and man the rottenness of these historical documents reminded him that he was not after all hastening on to begin the morning practically as he had intended he had come to work and to live by work and the morning had nearly gone it was, in one sense, encouraging to think that in a place of crumbling stones there must be plenty for one of his trade to do in the business of renovation, he asked his way to the workyard of the stonemason whose name had been given him at Alfredston, and soon heard the familiar sound of the rubbers and chisels. This reminds me of the um the Ken Follett novel, The Pillars of the Earth, right? Which is all about the construction of a huge cathedral. And it takes place over, I don't know, a couple hundred years as they build this, this stupid thing. And all the masons and all the people who worked on it. And I liked it. They made a, they made a miniseries about it. Guys, if you want to check out some, some fine stonemasonry storytelling, check out uh, The Pillars of the Earth.
0: No excuses.
1: If two of your workers continually fight, destroy property, tear down work that you spend months building up, what do you do?
0: I will not have Jack and Alfred working together. Look, one of them must go.
1: The yard was a little center of regeneration. Here, with keen edges and smooth curves, were forms in the exact likeness of those he had seen abraded and time-eaten on the walls. These were the ideas in modern prose, which the leechened colleges presented in old poetry. Even some of those antiques might have been called prose when they were new. They had done nothing but wait and had become poetical. How easy to the smallest building, how impossible... To most men. Oh, that's kind of, oh, I, that's, gee, Thomas Hardy, every once in a while you get me. You just got me right there, right? Buildings, all they have to do is sit around for a while, you know, 100, 200 years, and they become like poetry. They get smoothed over and abraded and leechened, as he said, and what was once just sort of workmanlike prose becomes, in its way, poetry. And men try to do that. How impossible to most men, because by the time we wait around to become poems, were dead. He asked for the foreman and looked round among the new traceries, mullions, transoms, shafts, pinnacles, and battlements standing on the bankers half-worked or waiting to be removed. They were marked by precision, mathematical straightness, smoothness, exactitude. There in the old walls were the broken lines of the original idea jagged curves, disdain of precision, irregularity, disarray. For a moment, there fell on Jude a true illumination, that here in the stoneyard was a center of effort as worthy as that dignified by the name of scholarly study within the noblest of the colleges. But he lost it under stress of his old idea, he would accept any employment which might be offered him on the strength of his late employer's recommendation, but he would accept it as a provisional thing only. This was his form of the modern vice of unrest. Hardy is giving us a little peek behind the curtain here of his own thinking. It seems like what he's saying is Jude had a moment of real clarity, and it's the kind of clarity that I think is 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 probably fairly common among people. You look at something, something kind of humble, in this case, stonework, and you recognize that you could devote your entire life to the mastery of this work and it would be a life well lived. Like, did you ever see that movie uh, about sushi, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, who has become a master sushi maker and he has this acclaimed restaurant uh, he has these disciples who study sushi making under him, and the amount of time just learning how to make rice is shocking because it 's all about getting that thing that that little thing perfect and until you do that, you cannot move on to the next thing and so jude has just a moment of illumination there where he says i could everything that is going on here is equal to everything that is going on within the buildings that these guys are repairing but he's so stuck in what hardy calls the modern vice of unrest that he can't even consider for more than than that one moment that maybe this is where he belongs. That maybe the the kind of higher aspirations, and then I'll go back for a second, where that one guy called the home of lost causes, one of the specters who afterwards more in Christminster called it the home of lost causes. He's about to enter this lost cause. Now, you and I could argue whether education for its own sake is a lost cause, Whether academia is a lost cause. Does that answer your question? I don't know. Dave Matthews, of course, has that great song um, about dreams. I actually don't know that he does, but I'm just guessing. That great song. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he does. That great song called Dreaming Tree uh, that we all like so much. And you guys know the lyrics to Dreaming Tree, right? Um, Where he says... uh, standing here the old man said to me long before these crowded streets here stood my dreaming tree below it he would sit for hours at a time now progress takes away what forever took to find so even dave matthews understands this modern vice of unrest the old man recognizes the value in sitting under the tree and just dreaming like jude momentarily recognizes the value of sitting down and carving some stone well, we didn't get very far today, guys, because there was there were so many uh, old masters to consider. You know, we talked a little Plato and other people. <laughs> you know, Jude is kind of the perfect modern hero and maybe the perfect hero of antiquity. He is the existential hero. He is Hamlet, he is Jude, he's like a uh, David Foster Wallace character, and they're all plagued by the same thing. The same question: aren't I meant for something more? How the world is made for each of us in each of the many helps to recruit the life of the race by a general plan. So, I'll leave you there. Jack-Jack is, um, he's fully stretched out next to me. And he's a small dog, so that doesn't mean much. But I would say he's taking up about a quarter of the love seat, maybe less. And I'm going to, what I'm going to do is as soon as I say goodbye to you, I'm probably going to pick him up and carry him back into the main house. And we will continue our love fest, just as I hope all of you have somebody to love. uh, And all of you find enjoyment and pleasure in whatever your situation is, because that's what it's all about, right? I'm glad you took a few minutes with me here on Obscure. No matter how obscure we are, we at least have each other. And until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf To subscribe and get more information Visit our show page At Earwolf.com If you like what you've heard Please write us a review On Apple Podcasts And you can talk to us At Obscure with Michael Ian Black At gmail.com Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn Who also mixed and edited today's show With music composed by Craig Wedren Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf Especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.
0: This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Raisa Lisea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aqui Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿Qué es lo que?